0: Coming up this week on the Thomas Jefferson Hour, a discussion with President Jefferson about the wall of separation between church and state.
1: What exactly did President Jefferson mean on January 1st, 1802, when he wrote to the Baptists of Danbury, Connecticut, that his reading of the First Amendment was that it erected a wall of separation between church and state? How much weight should we give that presidential letter when we talk about the relationship between religion and the polity of the United States.
0: And as usual, Jefferson offers his perspective, and it's a valuable one.
1: Plus, we learned that there's a new three-dimensional scanner at the Library of Congress that shows that, that Jefferson crafted an even more emphatic idea of the separation of church and state in America.
0: Please join us for all that and more on this week's Thomas Jefferson Hour. Good day, citizens, and welcome to What Would Jefferson Do? Our weekly opportunity to discuss American events with President Thomas Jefferson, who is seated across from me now. And good day to you, Mr. Jefferson.
1: Good day to you, citizen.
0: Mr. Jefferson, it is a very famous letter that you wrote to the Danbury Baptists about a a wall of separation between church and state. And it had an unusual outcome. They, they sent you a, a thank you gift. Am I correct?
1: And these are slightly unrelated in that another group, uh, fond of my um, doctrine of religious freedom, decided that it would be a good thing to send me the world's largest cheese. And this was in uh, Massachusetts, actually. And they gathered up. I think they, they milked 1,300 cows. They said they were all Republican cows, no Federalist cows. And they had produced this cheese that was uh, weighed 1,400 pounds, um, and it was um, more than a yard wide and seven or eight inches deep. And um, anyway, they 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 did they made this colossal cheese, and um, and brought it in a cart all the way to Washington D.C. where it was presented to me. You can imagine, sir, that this was not a great cheese as cheeses go, but it was a prodigy, and my detractors, um, the Federalists and others, soon began to call it the mammoth cheese because they knew how much I loved the idea of the woolly mammoth and the mastodon and other rare or prehistoric creatures. And so the, the word went out that the president has this mammoth cheese. I actually had built a platform for it with wheels so that on special occasions when I opened the White House on one or two occasions per year as a reception, the cheese could be wheeled out because people certainly wanted to see it. It lasted for years, you know, so you would have to cut off all of the moldy rind to get to whatever was left of the cheese. Uh, but it um it became a kind of a symbol, I think, of my own whimsicality, but also my really strong doctrine of religious freedom, you know in that letter that you speak of, I said my reading of the First Amendment is that it erects a wall of separation between church and state, and so that's what led the free thinkers, the Baptists, the the, the, the people who were not of, of, the, of the central Christian religions. And the central religions would be Lutheranism and Congregationalism and Presbyterianism and Anglicanism and Catholicism. These others were sort of fringe groups, and they were in danger of being persecuted. So they respected my doctrine of freedom of religion and wanted to reward me by sending the... Um, the cheese, and, and, and John Leyland was the pastor, and he actually accompanied the thing and and and, and delivered a sermon about it also.
0: Well, sir, not, not to minimize the importance of what you just said, but back to the cheese, uh, m- my understanding is, is that there were uh, quite a few people who came to the White House wanting to see it, and also, sir, that you could not accept it as a gift. You, you ended up paying for it. Is that right?
1: Well, first, the payment. So, The president should not receive gifts. If the president takes gifts from anybody, whether it's the world's largest cheese or some other emolument, that can be seen as a conflict of interest. Uh, There may be situations in which I would have to make a decision about religion, or for that matter, cheese, uh, that uh, could be said to have been influenced by that gift. And so I couldn't accept it. Because even in, a, in, in an instance as innocent as this, it, it can lead to all sorts of abuses if it becomes normalized. And so I wrote a check for two hundred dollars, which was both more and less than this cheese was worth. Um, and yes, uh, people who came to the White House would sometimes ask me about it, but they were occasionally they were too shy to ask the President of the United States to see what was ever left of the world's largest cheese they would ask my household staff and 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 whisper and then suddenly they would disappear into a back room and we often we asked everyone who came to 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 take a chunk of it home because you know that cheese isn't going to last forever and i hated just to throw it out but you know the the federalists of course said that it had no taste at all or or that the taste was disgusting and the republicans said that it tasted quite good thank you very much it it lingered for a, a couple of years and was a the source of squibs and satires in the nation's newspapers.
0: A very interesting story, sir, and I, I thank you very
1: much for sharing it. You are most welcome, sir.
0: citizens, and welcome to the Thomas Jefferson Hour, your weekly conversation with President Thomas Jefferson. Mr. Jefferson is portrayed by the award-winning humanities scholar and author Clay Jenkinson. I'm your host, David Swenson, and seated across from me is President Thomas Jefferson. So good to see you, Mr. Jefferson.
1: Good day to you, citizen.
0: Mr. Jefferson, I have a a subject of some seriousness that I'd like to discuss with you this week. And it really comes from a letter that you wrote in January of 1802 to the Danbury Baptists. I'm certain you remember this letter, sir.
1: Yes, I was in the uh, second year of my presidency, just beginning. Uh, I often had a New Year's reception uh, at the White House. Uh, one of two public receptions per year. Uh, But I wrote that day to the Baptists of Danbury in Connecticut, a, a village in Connecticut, because they had written me to congratulate me on my spirit of freedom of religion, that I was a champion of freedom of religion and had written the Virginia Statute for Religious Liberty, which was passed by the Virginia Assembly in 1786. So I had that letter. They had asked me to clarify, once again, the principles of our republic and the Bill of Rights, the first ten amendments. And I wrote back what turns out to be a famous letter, wasn't intended to be, in which I said my reading of the First Amendment is that it erects a wall of separation between church and state.
0: Well, sir, that letter really was largely forgotten for nearly 150 years, but then in 1947, the Supreme Court, Justice Hugo Black, in his opinion on a case, brought this to the fore. And, and since that time, that famous phrase of, of a wall of separation between church and state has become part of the lexicon.
1: It's interesting to me for, for several reasons. The phrase wall of separation between church and state is a figurative phrase. In other words, there isn't a literal wall. It's not made of bricks and mortar. So using that, that metaphor uh, was unusual for me. And the metaphors that I tended to use in similes in my writing were about the ship of state, and you can find innumerable instances of that. Uh, the ship has come safely into port, and we've, we've, we've weathered the storm of the Federalists, and so on and so forth. But this was an unusual moment for me, and that signified that this was a moment when I was really stepping back and trying to find precisely the right language for this. The second thing that that interests me about this is that it was never intended to be an official document. It was written by the person who happened to be the president of the United States. I was uh, assuring the the Baptists of Danbury that, as, as far as I was concerned, they were safe to pursue their religion, which they would not have been. Had there not been this principle growing in the United States, that every person was entitled to worship the God of his choice without civil reward or civil penalty, but that it should, in in the 20th century, long after my time, have been adopted by the Supreme Court of the United States as a a tight paraphrase of the purposes, the principle of the the First Amendment, is striking to me. It, It slightly embarrasses me, because I don't want to be the center of attention in that way. But I will say that, as far as I'm concerned, it is the tightest possible paraphrase of the intention of Mr. Madison and the Founding Fathers when they wrote the First Amendment of the Constitution.
0: So it's it's fair to say this is something you feel very strongly about, sir.
1: This is something I feel more strongly about than almost anything else. You know, on my Tombstone, the obelisk at Monticello in the in the cemetery, the graveyard. I said I wanted to be remembered for three things, uh, just three: um, the Declaration of Independence, the University of Virginia, but at the center, the Virginia Statute for Religious Liberty, which was at the time the most radical statement ever made about separation of church and state. That. Um, preceded the the letter to the Danbury Baptist by several decades. So, yes, I do feel extremely strongly about this. I believe that when the mind and the conscience are free, all other freedoms are available to us. But when the mind and the conscience are, are not free, are enslaved by, by tyranny or priestcraft or superstition or, or or coercion, that the other freedoms of life Uh, become less satisfying, in fact, less available to us. And so it all begins with the unlimited freedom of the human mind. If I think there is uh, one moon circulating the earth, or two, or twenty, or two hundred, that's my own view, and it hurts nobody except myself. If I believe there's one God, or twenty, or none at all, that neither picks your pocket nor breaks your leg. So what one privately believes Is absolutely sovereign. And unless it leads to some sort of antisocial behavior, unless it leads to crime, it must be left unmolested. And by which I mean entirely unmolested by governing bodies at any level. So this for me is something I feel passionate about. And by the way, it was the basis of my friendship with James Madison. Madison and I became dear friends. We were collaborators together for 50 years. He was a near neighbor of mine, and we bonded over our mutual disgust at the monopoly of religion in Virginia. The Anglican Church held a monopoly of religious activity and expression and doctrine until the Virginia Statute for Religious Liberty, which said, no, any other religious uh, entity, any sect, any congregation, no matter what its doctrine— should be allowed to find its adherents to, to present itself to the public and, and see which members of the public sought to attend services under those doctrinal or liturgical conditions. So Madison and I began our long collaboration as, as crusaders for freedom of religion in Virginia, and therefore I was widely known for this. And, and, and by the way, uh, my adversaries said that I was an atheist. Uh, they accused me of of being a free thinker or an atheist because I was for freedom of religion. That, that's a pretty large leap, but that's what they did. And I had to um, combat the charge of being an atheist in one way or another all of my adult life.
0: Well, knowing this, sir, and and you touched on it in your previous statement, but could you perhaps refresh our perspective on this? I mean, my understanding is many people came to America seeking religious freedom.
1: They did. Uh, this, of course, is really about New England. The Puritans and the Pilgrims left Britain because they believed that the Anglican settlement that came beginning with Henry Eighth and finally reached its apogee under James I, that the Anglican settlement, that that would be the state church of England, and it was not Catholic. It had jettisoned many Catholic rites and doctrines, including purgatory, for example, and it, it had jettisoned the saints and so on. Uh, it was moderate compared to the radical left, but it was uh, it was an attempt to find a middle way between Roman Catholicism, which had been rejected by the British, and the radical sectarians, the Anabaptists and the Moravians and and the Puritans and the pilgrims who who wanted to purify the church much more thoroughly than the Anglican settlement had permitted. And so, because Anglicanism was regarded by the radical element as too close to Catholicism, it, it hadn't reformed itself enough, it hadn't cleaned house sufficiently, these people who wanted more purity in the religious system of Britain were called Puritans, and they first left uh, under persecution to go to the Low Countries, uh, to the Netherlands, and from there uh, they came to the New World. The the New World had been discovered in 1492, but but Raleigh came in 1584, and uh, the Jamestown Colony in my own Commonwealth began in 1607, and so this was just at the period when North America was becoming a real thing for the people of Northern Europe. And they decided that they would go to this howling wilderness because whatever else is true there, they could worship as they pleased. So they, they did this thing. You know, you've all heard of the Mayflower and Pilgrim Rock and so on. They did this extraordinarily bold and courageous thing of leaving Europe, either England or the Low Countries and getting in these rickety 17th century ships, and crossing this very dangerous ocean for 3,000 miles and landing in New England, which they named, of course, after the home country. And there they felt that they could be free to pursue their religious stringencies without any obstacle. But, but here's the irony, sir. No sooner had they achieved that freedom than they began to tyrannize everybody else, they didn't say other groups can come to the new world and worship as they please, or anyone within our own community who, who has different views is free to worship as he pleases. They created their own religious tyranny, a new monopoly, but in the new world, and were persecuting everybody who didn't um, conform to their own religious doctrine and their own religious practices. And so they, they became a problem. They, they came to the new world in search of freedom, and then they persecuted people who didn't conform to their extremely rigid uh, doctrinal systems and liturgies.
0: President Jefferson, we need to take a break. When we return, I'd like to talk to you more specifically about what the Constitution says about this.
1: Well, you know that I was not at the Constitutional Convention in 1787. I was in France at that time serving as the American minister to the court of Louis XVI, but I watched the process with a great curiosity and expectation and I know that one of my concerns when the product was, was finished in September of 1787 is that it did not contain a Bill of Rights so the, the religious questions that should have been settled in the Constitution were not and it wasn't until the Bill of Rights was ratified on December 15, 1791 that freedom of religion was finally enshrined in the constitutional structure of the United States.
0: Thank you very much, Mr. Jefferson. We shall return to this conversation in just a moment. You're listening to The Thomas Jefferson Hour. Welcome back to the Thomas Jefferson Hour. And this week we're speaking with President Thomas Jefferson about the wall of separation between church and state. And Mr. Jefferson, we, we touched on the Constitution before we took our break, and it's the First Amendment that says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Uh, However, it doesn't prohibit the nation from becoming
1: a Christian nation, does it, sir? Certainly not. The people are free to be anything they want. It could be a Mohammedan nation. It could be a Hindu nation. It could be an atheistic nation. It could be a deist nation. But it is, in fact, demographically and historically, a Christian nation. In other words, the great bulk of the people who came here from Europe were Christians, especially the ones we've spoken about, the, those who settled New England. You know, Maryland was settled by Catholics. It was the only Catholic province in the, in the New World. Uh, Virginia was settled by Anglicans, and we had an Anglican monopoly up until 1786, when my bill for the establishment of religious liberty in Virginia was finally passed, thanks largely to the legislative patience and work of, of James Madison. Connecticut was Congregationalist, etc. So the Presbyterians had a monopoly in Massachusetts, and each state, for whatever reason, had developed a sort of Christian tribe, Christian uh, approach, monopoly, and they were very hard on people who did not conform to that religious philosophy or that religious system. This seems uh, insane to me, and and I I first really figured this out by looking at the settlers in Western Virginia. So while I was born an Anglican and raised in the Anglican tradition and knew the Anglican songs and uh, understood the Anglican liturgy and was educated by Anglican uh, tutors, the people in Western Virginia across the Alleghenies, they were Germans. And their religious views were very different, or they were Scots-Irish, and that would make them quite dramatically different from Anglicans. And so here they were, innocent people who came to the New World for all that the New World represents, but they had to pay taxes to support the Anglican Church, whether they were Anabaptists or Moravians or Catholics or, or, or what have you they had to attend religious services. And although these laws were not rigidly enforced, if they failed to attend, they could be fined and eventually much worse. So here were people who were eking out a living on the western side of our mountains who were being taxed for a church they did not support. In fact, a church that they had deliberately left the home countries to get out from under. This seems to me to be exactly what we mean by tyranny. Why should we force people to support a church that they do not, in fact, favor with money and religious attendance? So this is why Madison and I worked so hard on the Virginia Statute for Religious Liberty, which solved that problem. But that was a local thing. Then I looked around and realized that this was the case all over the country. It was just different denominations monopolizing different parts of our colonial system what we didn't want was a state church in america you know england has a state church even into your time the anglican church so well, it would have been quite possible for the united states to have a state church in my time fortunately there was so much diversity between pennsylvania and connecticut and massachusetts and maryland and virginia that it would have been very hard for any one of those churches to become the central the the, the sole church of the country but I wanted not to have this, this situation be merely an accident of, of diversity. I wanted it to be a principle of our national constitution. And so Mr. Madison wrote the First Amendment, and what he means by establishment would be a state church of the United States, that we mustn't have that either for the country or for any individual state. That's the first half of the, of the religious article in the Bill of Rights in in Article 1. The second part is that it it must not prohibit the free exercise thereof. So if I am a deist and I want to um, engage in deistic activities, as long as they are not antisocial, as long as they don't involve crimes, the state cannot notice them. The state must be absolutely neutral, whether I'm a deist or a Hindu or a Jew or a Mohammedan and so on. And so there are, two, there are two sides to the First Amendment. One, to prohibit once and for all the kind of Anglican uh, official church that exists in England, and secondly, to make sure that there is no persecution of what might be regarded as unusual religious practices or doctrines.
0: The Constitution says it is against the law to establish a state religion. Am I right?
1: That is correct. It 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 would it would violate the First Amendment of the Constitution of the United States if, say, South Carolina adopted Methodism as the state religion of South Carolina. That would immediately go to the courts. The courts would strike it down and say that it violates the Establishment Clause of the Constitution of the United States.
0: A well-written line, sir, that you and Mr. Madison. Well, I should say Mr. Madison came up with, it not only prohibits a state religion, but it protects other religions,
1: correct? That is correct. So something that would be seen as marginal in my time might have been Methodism, which was just beginning to percolate in England. Uh, This was not particularly a radical religion, but it was was new. And John Wesley was uh, in some ways a controversial figure. And so in order to protect that religion, we have the second part of the First Amendment, which says that you cannot prohibit the free exercise of religion. And again, I add as a kind of asterisk, as long as it doesn't commit crimes. If there's criminal activity, um, for example, if there were a church in which, and I speak of horrors here, sir, but if there were a church in which the minister had a doctrine that he would he would be the person to sleep with every virgin in that church, as an act of of worship, that would be uh, prohibited under our system because that would be rape, and so. But if he said that if that same minister said that that he um, should advise every young woman before her marriage, the state would would stay clear of that because that would not be a, uh, the commission of a crime, and so it's only when a crime is is intimately involved in the very nature of that church that the state will take notice. But there are many religions which are now mainstream in your time, including Baptists, who would have been persecuted in my time because they were not yet sufficiently rooted in American life to be normalized.
0: One of the reasons I wanted to speak to you, sir, about this is that um, as you know, there are two major political parties in America, and more than 60% of one of those parties want the United States to be declared a Christian nation, uh, according to a recent poll. This is a slippery slope, and as a citizen, it, it concerns me.
1: It would be a disastrous uh, occurrence if this um, were passed into law. If you read the Constitution of the United States, it's about 4,500 words long. Um, the word God is never mentioned. Uh, Jesus and Christ are never mentioned. Religion is never mentioned in the body of the Constitution. The preamble, the famous preamble, we the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, and so on. That would have been the logical place to invoke providence or God. For example, I invoke providence and the Creator in the Declaration of Independence, in these state papers, that this is where this sort of thing would occur in that preamble, which was written by Governor Morris of Pennsylvania, but on behalf of the 55 delegates at the Constitutional Convention, God, Godhead, Providence, Religion, Christ, uh, Jesus, Salvation are never mentioned. That means uh, that our Constitution— written in 1787 and ratified in 1788, is a secular document. I repeat, if you just read the Constitution of the United States, you would have to conclude that what they intended was a secular constitutional order in the United States. And then they went one step farther in the Bill of Rights saying there will be no establishment in a free society, and there will be no prohibition on the free exercise of religious activities By our citizens. It couldn't be any more clear than that. Now, it is true, sir, that demographically the American people are a Christian nation. If you look at the statistics, well, more than half of all Americans say that they believe in God, that they are Christians of one sort or another, they attend religious services, they pray, uh, etc. So, this is the distinction that people don't seem to understand. You can be a secular constitutional system inhabited by a Christian people. But it's not just Christians, of course, is it? There are atheists, there are deists, there are Jewish people, there are um, uh, Muslims, there are people from every religion in in every part of, of the planet, including, of course, Native Americans who have their own religious systems which bear no resemblance to the old or new testaments and they are all protected in this our happy republic so the people that in your time who would say we we are a christian nation are absolutely right on average it's what they intend to do with that statement that's alarming and and if they wished the constitution to to bear witness that we are a christian nation that would require a constitutional amendment it would be a pathetic and an extremely wrong-headed thing to do i doubt that it could pass because it would effectively disenfranchise or subordinate all jews all muslims all deists all atheists and so on and that's precisely what the founding fathers did not want in other words there are many things in your time when you try to figure out what did the founding fathers intend that are that are difficult to make sense of partly because we lived in a three-mile-per-hour world that couldn't anticipate the things that matter in your time. And so many times, jurists and constitutional theorists have to throw up their hands and say, well, it's not clear. It's not clear what the founders wanted here. It's not clear what they would have intended on this or that situation. But in this one, sir, the founding fathers were very clear. If they had wanted us to be a Christian nation by definition, they would have stated it In the Constitution of the United States. That was a blank slate. They could have written anything in those 4,500 words that they chose, and they did not in any time invoke God or Christ or Jesus or salvation or the church. And then they added to it a stronger message in the first, the primary number of the Bill of Rights. So, the Founding Fathers were absolutely certain of what they intended here. Does that mean they weren't Christians? Of course not. Most of the founding fathers were Christians of one sort or another, but they understood freedom better than the people of your time seemed to do, and they knew that to be neutral on these questions was the best possible future for the new Republic of the United States. And so when, when people in your time get um, upset about this and say well, that the founders intended a Christian nation, your answer to them has to be, show me in the primary document of this country where that is ensconced and enshrined.
0: I have to wonder, sir, uh, the people who advocate this position of becoming a Christian nationalist nation, if they've thought it through, uh, what it could mean in the long term. Uh, Maybe they believe it's a political advantage for them, but what goes around comes around. And this kind of restriction on religion could spread to other things.
1: It could, and keep in mind that that's just step one. So let's say that they are fashion a constitutional amendment saying the United States of America is a Christian nation, um, under the providential protection of God. If they did that, and it passed, it would take two thirds of both houses of Congress, and then three quarters of all the states to ratify. So assuming that this statement could be ratified. That's only step one. Now the question is going to be, is Mormonism a Christian religion? What do we do with uh, the Muslims of America now? Should they be openly persecuted? Should they be allowed to worship privately? I mean, these are questions that ravaged the Renaissance, the reigns of Elizabeth I and James I. If you were a Catholic could you be a church Catholic? In other words, you attend Anglican services, but you quietly um, uh, practice the mass at home, Uh, maybe bringing in a priest in the middle of the night. Uh, What are the penalties for nonconformance? Where does it stop? Are Presbyterians Christians, are Methodist Christians, are um, Unitarians Christians? So once you start down this road, if you're going to say this is a Christian nation, soon you're going to have to define what you mean by Christian, and there are going to be plenty of religious organizations and sects that now have freedom at the margins of the Christian settlement that are going to be under suspicion, are going to be scrutinized uh, by the new censors of religious sensibility. So this system would soon self-divide this happened in every state. The Anglican Church was a monopoly in Virginia. The Congregational Church was a monopoly in Connecticut. They persecuted people of other faiths. And this is why you don't want to start down this path, because the minute you do, the next step will be, well, such and such a sect doesn't really belong under a Christian dispensation. Let's outlaw it, or let's persecute it in some way. Uh, And if you don't believe this is true— uh, just read the history of the 16th and 17th century in England, and you will see what a tragic and anarchic mess it could be.
0: Finally, Mr. Jefferson, uh, so people understand, it, it's not as if you prohibited religion and I mean, you you allowed religious events to occur at the White House. You You, sir, did not prohibit any religion.
1: Now we get into my own religious views, which are no one's business but my own, of course, uh, I, I was very uh, quiet, even secretive about all of that. But as a public matter, for example, there were Washington, D.C. was our new national capital. There were no churches yet established there. There was almost nothing there when the government moved to uh, the District of Columbia in 1800. You know, John and Abigail Adams were, were in, a, in a White House where the plaster wasn't yet dry, wasn't even on all of the walls in that cavernous building Pennsylvania Avenue was uh, was nothing but mud pigs rooted around um, in, in what are now public spaces you know it was a it was a, a a national capital in potentia for the future but the point is that there was no place to hold religious services and so I was asked about this and I said well they can use the House of Representatives on Sunday as long as it's ecumenical in other words, we can accommodate that. This, this is We're not hostile to religion. We just want to make sure there's no establishment, that there's no monopoly, that there's no coercion. And so, yes, it makes good sense. If there were another building, I would suggest that, a private building. But because there isn't, of course, they can hold ecumenical religious services in the Uh, on the floor of the House of Representatives. And I attended Anglican services off and on all of my life. My children were baptized and confirmed under the Anglican dispensation. But when other religions came to me asking for donations to build a chapel or a church, I, I almost always subscribed, even though I didn't particularly have the money to do so. We can be flexible in these things. We don't have to be rigid. The point is, no state church in America and no persecution for you, whatever your religious sensibilities are, however unusual or strange they may seem to the authorities.
0: Thank you so much for this conversation this week, Mr. Jefferson.
1: You are welcome, sir.
0: We're going to take a short break. When we return, we'll be speaking with the gentleman who portrays President Thomas Jefferson, Mr. Clay Jenkinson. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Thomas Jefferson Hour. back to the Thomas Jefferson Hour, your weekly conversation with or about President Jefferson. We are now joined by uh, Mr. Clay Jenkinson, out of character. And thank you so much for this conversation this week, sir.
1: This is a very important subject, um, one of my favorite subjects in in Jefferson. I should say a couple of things just to get us started. Uh, First of all, uh, Dr. James Hudson, of the Library of Congress Manuscripts Division is a friend of mine. He's retired now. He's a brilliant scholar. He's written a book on um, the development of natural rights in European history. He showed me once at the Library of Congress the actual document, the letter to the Danbury Baptists. Really? Yeah, so there it is. And, of course, in Jefferson's just exquisite handwriting, and they had a super-duper 3D printer. I hope that's a technical term, uh, <laughs> in which they had been able, David, you, you'll understand this, it had been able to go behind the, lang- the letters. It, had, it, 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 it could penetrate over the ink into what was behind the ink on this page. And what it found was that what Jefferson had originally written was a wall of eternal separation between church and state so he had added a strong adverb like i really mean this <laughs> and so but had but had crossed it out and and left it as wall of separation between church and state so there it was and you can see unmistakably that he had carried it in eternal uh, but um, for one reason or another thought better of it so that's amazing so in other words it's not a throwaway sentence it's a it's something that jefferson deeply believed and in the virginia statute for religious liberty which was passed in 1786 while he was in france he added this thing at the at the at the bottom of the preamble the preamble is this this magnificent statement of of freedom of expression and freedom of conscience and freedom of religion um, at the end of it, he says, and I know that no law can be perpetual. I get it, you know, that any that, uh, people coming along 20 or 30 years from now can write different laws or rescind this one, but they shouldn't. He says, they shouldn't. You should never mess with this. You should never deteriorate this principle that I have articulated in the Virginia Statute for Religious Liberty. So he he, he knows that it's that he's on thin ice here because you can't, you know, he believes the world belongs to the living and future generations have absolute sovereignty over how they wish to live their lives. But he can't help himself and says, I've written this, don't ever rescind this. You mustn't ever rescind this. So nothing was more important to Jefferson than this. And so as you say, uh, Hugo Black and the the courts of of the mid-20th century began to use that phrase, wall of separation, as a really good uh, paraphrase of the intentions of the First Amendment until William Rehnquist came along. Rehnquist was in the seventies, a conservative uh, retreat from um, the uh, you know the courts uh, led by Earl Warren that desegregated schools and outlawed prayer in schools and so on. And Rehnquist went after Jefferson and said. Jefferson was just a man. He was just a president. He's, he was not a jurist. He wasn't a Supreme Court justice. He, this wasn't a filing before the Supreme Court. That's a private letter. We shouldn't be making as much of his phrase, wall of separation, as we seem to do. Why are we all hanging on Jefferson here? It, because this is, this is unrelated, really, as legal doctrine. It was snarky. But he was right. He, he was right that that phrase is not a constitutional phrase. And therefore, it, it it may not, you know, the First Amendment is it, it has more nuances in it than we're giving it credit for having.
0: I thought Jefferson did a very good job explaining that.
1: Yes, he did. So anyway, uh, now we're in this position where, I mean, all my life, I've been at this for 40 years, and ev- almost every time I ever go somewhere, somebody comes up and says, so Jefferson was a Christian. and <laughs> I say, well... You know, not not really. He was mostly a Unitarian. Um, and then they say, and the founding fathers intended a Christian nation. And then I say, well, if that were so, it should be in the document. When they hear me say that the, the Constitution is utterly free of any reference to God, then they say, that's because it was so obvious that it didn't even need to be stated. I mean, it was it was so clear and obvious. You, they didn't have to say something like that. So the arguments are really um, thin and weak. But it is a very striking to me that when the Constitution was written, largely by Christians in 1787, that they did not put in the kind of routine language that of God and providence, because the Declaration of Independence, you know, speaks of the, the, the laws of the creator, providence is invoked at the end. You know, the, In a document like this, you would expect there to be an invocation of divine providence of some sort. If it's an Enlightenment invocation, it would be very general and vague, but it could have been much tighter. It could have said, you know, under the auspices of God who, who helped us achieve independence from Great Britain and knowing of the sacrifice of his son for all humankind, we now establish this constitution. They did not. It's a purely... Secular document. And it's so hard for people to get that into their brains that it doesn't mean we're an atheist nation or even a secular nation. It means we have a secular constitution. And I regard the constitution as one of the Enlightenment's greatest single achievements. And the Enlightenment was beginning to edge away from a Christian centered or a religious centered view of the universe into a more scientific, a more admittedly secular. Uh, outlook. And so it reflects that time. If the Constitution had come later, after the Second Great Awakening, it probably would have invoked providence or God. But it happened in 1787 at the high-water mark of the Enlightenment in America, and therefore reflects that intense, purposeful secularity. And so the people that are wanting us to be a Christian nation are, are making many confusions, are confusing demographics with the Constitution, but they also are, are not speaking with historical grounding. If they, if they would just read the, the literature, any history of this era, they would say, OK, we get it. We get it that the Founding Fathers lived in this secular time and this was an Enlightenment and so on. But we would now like to declare that this is a Christian nation because we think that's so important to our national order or decency or whatever. That would be an argument worth making, and we'll see if it passes.
0: I get very alarmed when I read news reports about uh, politicians saying that we should become a Christian nationalist, Christian nation. But at, on the other hand, I I think it is political posing in, in order to gain support. Um, I, I can't imagine this ever, ever happening.
1: Yeah, we couldn't imagine the reverse of Roe either. I mean, things do happen, and this is a very— unprecedented time. You know, I I have to say I blame someone like Ronald Reagan on this front. You remember what he used to say? Who expelled God from the classroom? You know, the, a kind of a, an easy, sleazy, snarky statement like that that's very memorable and very clever is fundamentally ahistorical because it suggests that a bunch of, uh, um, of, 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 of angry atheists have expelled God from the classroom to get even or to do damage to the United States, when in fact the Supreme Court agonized over this through the 20th century until finally they said, you know, the First Amendment seems to prohibit prayer in schools because that would be an establishment of Christianity. And some of those students might be Muslims, Some of those students might be Jews. Some of those students might be Lakota Indians. And so the Supreme Court didn't do this joyfully or with willful destructiveness. They agonized over the meaning of the First Amendment. And when these cases came about prayer at baccalaureate or prayer on the football field or prayer in school or and so on, they had to say, what did the founders really intend here? And what it amounts to is when in doubt, you can't have it. So when in doubt, if there's a if there's a, a, a list of the Ten Commandments on the courthouse lawn, and somebody files suit, the courts have to say, "Nope, that would be an establishment. That would suggest that in this county in Alabama or this county in Wyoming that there that the Old Testament, the Christian dispensation, is the established religion. What about the Quran? What about uh, the Bhagavad Gita? What about the Upanishads of, of India? And when someone..." File suit about a, a crucifix on the publicly um, held mountain, publicly owned mountain overlooking a Colorado town. The courts say, "I'm sorry that now that it, you brought it up, we wouldn't have we wouldn't have proactively gone after it. But now that you brought it up, yes, that crucifix probably has to come down. The same is true of the of the crash on the courthouse lawn. And so the courts aren't doing this because they're they're nasty. The courts are doing this because they're trying to adhere to the the intentions of the Constitution of the United States and the First Amendment, and the people that hate that, and we all know the people who hate that, then they think, well, they're attacking religion. But of course, they're not attacking religion. They're adhering to the to the compact. And the same people are absolutists on the Second Amendment, but they are willing to play fast and loose with the first because they're not consistent in their constitutional reading or I almost said constitutional philosophy, but it's not philosophy. It's just concern. So here's my question to anyone. There are people listening who probably disagree with some of this. They can't disagree historically, but they can disagree about intention. So if they disagree, I would ask them this. What if we started Christian prayer in every school in America tomorrow? That starting tomorrow, first, second, third, twelfth grade, you go to school, and, and, and the principal gets on, and, the, and and there's a Christian prayer. How will that change America in the next 20, 50, or 100 years. In other words, that cat, David, is out of the bag. We are so secular. In fact, I'll go to the other end of the spectrum here. As a humanities scholar who agonizes every day over what's happened to America, I am deeply worried about the radical secularization of American life. I think our secularity enables all sorts of chaos and abuse and exploitation of the environment and a despiritualization of landscapes, including in my beloved North Dakota, that radical secularity is the characteristic of of the American people in the 21st century, and it's killing us and it's killing the planet, that we need to re-spiritualize, but not along the lines necessarily of the Old and New Testament. So I'm worried about secularity, but I also know that the founders had it right when they created this wall of separation and so people just need to calm down and to do some hard historical reading
0: good luck with that it's just you know it's calm. just so wearying it's not, it's not the era of calming down i don't think
1: but you 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 suggested this program you're alarmed by this phenomenon
0: well i am you know i i am but i also you know it's it's always very reassuring to hear the voice of Thomas Jefferson and get his perspective and slow down and think about it and 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 what it means. I mean for me, it comes down to you know what is america it's 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 freedom for all or freedom for none. And once you take away religious freedom for all, what you just explained the the dangers of what could happen, I think are the things to consider.
1: Oh, well, certainly. And, you know, this is a very imperfect history that we've had. The LDS church was persecuted uh, desperately uh, in the 19th century. It's what finally led Brigham Young to take them to the Deseret, to Utah. So it takes vigilance to make sure that we realize this, that, and I know this bothers the Christian nationalists, but in this country, from a religious point of view, anything goes, as long as crimes are not committed. And so when David Koresh is using his um, primacy in his offbeat sect to mass illegal guns and to rape women in his church, the U.S. government eventually stepped in. Why? Not because he has a wacky uh, doctrine or understanding of religion, but because he was committing crimes that are actual crimes in the codes, uh, of the United States government. And so this, there's a breadth, if you, if you drive to the, to the edge of Denver, to the edge of Charlotte, North Carolina, to the edge of Charlottesville, you see all these teeny little churches and strip malls that are, they just open one day and there are folding chairs in it. And they, they, they splurge and get a a $150 cross. And then a few years later, they have a splendid new temple on the edge of town. It's just breathtaking to watch how the the spin-off you know it all began in the reformation it was catholicism until luther and calvin and then the fissuring began and the fissuring is fissured and fissured and fissured and fissured until now if you look in the yellow pages or what used to be the yellow pages of of a city you'll see this breathtaking variety of religious expression all the way from conservative roman catholicism to a more liberated roman catholicism from high Anglicanism to Episcopalianism and everything down the line until you get to the edge of town. And right next to the Napa auto parts store, there's a tiny little new religious entity that some guy has opened and people start to come. And if he can appeal to them for whatever appeals to them, he builds a church. And if he can't in the free marketplace of religious ideas, they drift back to baptism or Methodism or Lutheranism or whatever it might be. It's, it's astounding, and no other country has this. This is one of the great geniuses of our system, and I, I just love it because it doesn't pick your pocket, David. It doesn't break your leg. That's Jefferson's famous statement from Notes on the State of Virginia. It neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg. And when you think about it, it's true. I mean, they may be wacky. They may be insane, but as long as they're driving at the speed limit and not shooting people in the streets, they're protected. And the market will decide. I mean, if I open a church tomorrow, I've thought of it, actually. If I, <laughs> I've thought of it. If I opened a little church, the Church of, of Humanism on the edge of town, you know, it would close within six months. But if I were a charismatic and had a view of salvation that jesus was actually a woman or jesus was dropping acid or jesus was had had had, had gone to china and had learned some confucianism and all these by the way are religions i might i might find some adherents and they might support me and i say have at it you know that's it, the, the result is fissuring but the alternative is tyranny. And people don't seem to understand that.
0: Thank you very much, Clay, for this enlightening discussion. Is there anything we ought to worry about?
1: Yes, there is. I believe that if the current trends continue, David, the 1960s cases at the Supreme Court that outlawed prayer in school will be overturned. We already see the case that in the last session in which uh, the coach in Washington State is now allowed to pray with his students on the 50-yard line uh, before, during, or after the game, I believe that there will be an erosion and maybe a demolition of the wall of separation between church and state, and that we will move to an America that is much less free. And we won't know that we lost our freedom until we lost it, and then people will say, how did this happen? We must be vigilant. We'll see you all next week for another important edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour.
2: The Thomas Jefferson Hour is brought to you each week by Dakota Sky Education. The program is distributed nationally by Prairie Public. President Thomas Jefferson lived from 1743 to 1826, and this program presents his views President Jefferson is portrayed by the award winning humanities scholar and author Clay S. Jenkinson. To obtain a copy of this or any show for a $12 donation, please call 701 575 0727. This program is also available online at jeffersonhour.com and on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to correspond with President Jefferson or submit a question for him to answer on the program, please visit the website at jeffersonhour.com. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is produced at Makoche Recording Studios in Bismarck, North Dakota. Bach Cello Suite No. 3 in C Major by Stephen Swinford. Thank you for listening. Please tune in again next week for another thought-provoking, historically accurate program Through the Eyes of Thomas Jefferson.